Hi, I'm Melissa Roach with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host, Andrew Hall, is joined by Paul Taylor, Executive Director of Foodshare Toronto. Together, they discuss Paul's work with Foodshare, the notion of the right to food and justice over charity, and the importance of electing policymakers that can represent the needs of the community. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. I am uh, very, very happy to be talking to an old friend and colleague who I met in in, in Vancouver because he had just moved out from uh, Toronto. But uh, Paul Taylor, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to uh, great to reconnect like this. Paul, I, of course, uh, met you when you were executive director of the Downtown Eastside Neighborhood House. You had moved out from uh, work you'd been doing in Toronto for a long time. You worked at the Gordon Neighborhood House here as well in Vancouver before returning to Toronto to work. But wondering if we can start by you uh, introducing yourself a, a little bit. Sure. I would say, you know, I feel like every time I hear people introduce themselves, they start with all of the letters behind their name. And I, I make a conscious effort not to do that. Actually, even before I do that, I want to acknowledge that I'm a little further away and I'm joining you from the uh, traditional territory of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabeg, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. Also, one of the things that's really important is I orient myself and think about where I am and what uh, what my responsibilities are as a result of, of the land that I'm on. But yeah, so a little bit about me. Yeah, I was going to say that I think the most important experience that I ever had in my life was growing up poor and growing up in a low-income household that was often... You know, we certainly interacted with food insecurity for large portions of my childhood. We were without heat, hot water, electricity. And when I when I talk to people about this, uh, they're always taken aback. And they say, you know, in Canada, in Toronto, really? And I say, yes, you know, in one of the richest countries in the world. This was uh, my family's reality. And I'm sure the reality for many, many families across the country. But yeah, that was the most, uh, I think, pivotal experience for me and really, really formative. And I think as a result of our, our material poverty, it forced us to have to interact with charity, really traditional charity, food bank lines, you know, models that are really built on other people's leftovers and corporate waste with little choice. You know, I remember getting holiday gifts in a bag marked Boy 8. You know, all of those things and those experiences for me have really shaped who I am as a person. And I, I remember as a child, one of the things that my mother always taught me was that, you know, if I wanted to see something change, that I have to make it happen. So I really started, as I got a little bit older, really started understanding why we were living in poverty. You know, I learned that there was a premier that cut welfare rates by 22% and meant we had less food and less less money. So I really was, I guess, activated at that point and wanted to find ways that I could kind of challenge that. So I ended up finding a gig at a homeless youth shelter where I think I spent five years there, dreamed of creating something better because I I was invited into, I think, a multi-tiered system or a two-tiered system where we think, you know, if you're materially poor, if you're homeless, you are only entitled to other people's leftovers and that sort of thing. So I I worked with my colleagues to kind of re-envision what it would mean to 
you know, make the, the youth shelter a welcoming space, a space that provided opportunities to celebrate food, to engage with art, to engage with sport. Uh, so we actually found dollars to hire an art teacher, hire a physical activity and recreational programmer. We built a, a catering company and engaged young people in growing food at the shelter and cooking food. So I had a great experience there, but really realized that I was, you know, kind of challenging uh, existing systems within the organization organization that I was working in. So I was really inspired when I ended up being hired to work at the Downtown Eastside Neighborhood House, uh, where I first met you. You know, what I loved about the Downtown Eastside Neighborhood House is uh, I'm going into all the things that you probably want to ask me about. No, 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 please, please. This is great. <laughs> okay. What I, what I loved about the Downtown Eastside Neighborhood House is it was in, in a community um, where there was a significant number of people who were materially poor, who were homeless, who were street involved, uh, survival sex workers. And what the organization was, was centered on was a right to food. So not a right to other people's leftovers, not a right to three-legged carrots or ugly potatoes, a right to food. And that really, for me, um, responded to that thinking that I had done as a child about if we have a right to food or, or certain rights, what are the systems that are available to us to ensure that we have those rights animated? So I really like that the organization engaged in meaningful conversations around poverty and what it would mean to eradicate poverty. And uh, it was an activist organization. So I, um, you know, really enjoyed my time there. Uh, yeah. And then here I am back at Food Share. <laughs> and also at, at the Gordon Neighborhood House, you also worked around a lot of food-related um, issues there. You continued uh, building on that conversation. And this notion of the of the right to food, food justice, is, is, is a wonderful one to think through because I think we sort of walk into that tension between charity and justice that functions in the nonprofit uh, sector. I can remember mm -hmm. uh, in Vancouver when the CBC radio would be doing... Uh, a drive for the food bank, you were outside protesting that. Mm -hmm. and, and for a lot of people, it's counterintuitive because they think of that kind of model about the food banks doing this type of work. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about what you mean about the right to food or food justice in terms of how you've uh, articulated it over the years, both from personal experience, but also um, in embodied in the in the type of work that you've done for sure so i guess um the first thing is around the right to food and i think it's a really important thing to tease out a little bit because i realize more and more that it seems that our policymakers and and maybe some bureaucrats don't quite understand what the right to food is and what it is and the right to food sets the government as the duty bearer it is their duty canadians are rights holders so we possess this right it's the government's duty to create the conditions that allow people to access the food that they need to feed their families with food that's acceptable, culturally appropriate, you know, filled with nutrients, that sort of thing. So, you know, clearly when we have in a country like Canada, over 5 million people that are food insecure, we have governments at actually every level that are not advancing the right to food and their obligations under the right to food. So I think that's a really important place to start these conversations because often it's people feeling a moral imperative to do something about, you know, the fact that uh, your neighbors, our neighbors may not have food to eat and we, we start collecting things and we, we take on that responsibility. But I think it's really, really important to recognize that we don't have the capacity to address the issue that's allowed to get to the scale that it is. We're not going to, you know, solve food insecurity through collecting peanut butter and tuna and, and this sort of thing. So I think those folks who have engaged or who have been convinced that the solution to poverty and food insecurity is through charity 
you know, those are the folks that I'm really interested in, in activating in a different kind of way and recognizing where responsibility rests and actually working towards justice and tackling some of the inequities that, that cause food insecurity to take place. And maybe the one last thing I'll add, when I talk about these inequities, we're talking about things like inadequate labor laws, inadequate minimum wages. 65% of people in this country that are food insecure actually derive their income from employment. So it means they are working and obviously working in jobs that don't afford them what seems to have become the luxury of access to food. So I think that's where we've got to begin and we've got to make sure that we're holding our elected officials to account, to holding them accountable for their obligations under the the, the right to food. Yeah, and it seems also that uh, some food banks, depending on where you are um, in the country, require forms to be filled out and other types of intake mechanisms that can be really totally problematic in their premise. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the work that FoodShare is doing currently where where you're executive director, but also I'm wondering if you can reflect on the real challenges of the of the pandemic moment over the past year and a half, something that, that came in and has had so much effect on the ground um, all around, um, how you have read the present political moment in terms of how you've tried to navigate it with an organization and how, when you reflect back on the types of policy changes, you mentioned a few right there, but what are the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about to get out of this um, into the, the the future, given so many systems failed us in uh, the pandemic context. That's a great question. So I guess I'll start with the work of <clears throat> the work of FoodShare and FoodShare's work. I would describe primarily as working to working alongside communities across the city of Toronto, uh, communities that have faced generational chronic underinvestment. So we work with these communities to build community-led, resident-owned food infrastructure. So we're setting up things like affordable produce markets um, that we call good food markets. We've helped establish 50 of them across the city. We we work to convert underutilized public land, whether it's a hydro corridor or a school field, into spaces for a community to grow food, to sell food, and of course, purchase and access food. So ultimately, yeah, we're really focused on building that infrastructure. We're also advocating. uh, To an increasing amount, we are advocating for the systems type change that we need. And I'll come back to that one in the end around, yeah, advocating for the types of policies that we think will ultimately address these issues, food insecurity and poverty. When it comes to the pandemic, you know, at the onset, I was a gamut of emotion. First and foremost, really feeling for people who have been profoundly affected by this pandemic, whether it's losing a loved one, losing work, uh, not knowing when their work was coming back online. We have at FoodShare, we responded by, you know, developing something that we call the emergency good food box, where we have a social enterprise or previous to the prior to the pandemic, we had operated a social enterprise that had us selling boxes of fresh produce to families across uh, Toronto. So what we realized is with food banks, as the pandemic hit, we were seeing reports that something like 40% of food banks were forced to close. So we said, we have this fleet of vehicles, we have drivers, we have access to, we buy millions of pounds of produce each year. Actually, since the pandemic started, we've distributed for free over 2 million pounds of produce. And it's the equivalent boxes that folks would have gotten had they purchased a box from us. And what we did is we partnered with 80, actually with about 90 groups across the city of Toronto, working directly with communities that we know are 
typically most affected by food insecurity, and said to them, we don't have any fancy forms, we don't require any information from the folks who you are wanting us to deliver the box to, just tell us their name and address. So we were able to deliver, like I say, uh, thus far about 2 million pounds of produce for free across the city. You know, that's how we've responded. But I also, we also reflect on, you know, the opportunity also that this moment presents in a number of ways. We're partnering with these organizations um, who are wanting to respond to this crisis. And I guess the first concern that I had is that this is not unlike the early 80s, where folks were wanting to respond to another financial crisis. And this is when we saw the advent of Canada's first food bank, and we've just seen charity explode. So I was actually really concerned that organizations like mine, like others, were going to continue to allow governments to ignore their responsibilities by doing what we could to plug the gap. But what I was really actually excited about, the more I had conversations and the more we partnered with new groups, is there was a different kind of analysis bubbling up. It wasn't, let's let's feed these hungry people full stop. It was, let's nourish our community, let's fuel the revolution, and let's keep our eyes on the prize, which is the systems change that we're looking for, the public policy changes that we're looking for that won't cause people to fall behind like this. So... That part's been really exciting. And I think when I think about the, the kind of public policy leadership that we feel, you know, I'm going to go back to the right to food and human rights. I think one of the things we've, we see too often is people dangling a single policy out, whether it's basic income or building uh, or whatever it might be. And I think, you know, dangling a policy out in a vacuum is not really helpful. I think we need a human rights framework. We need um, legislation that advances our human rights, and we need to think about how government departments and ministries can be working together to advance our human rights. So maybe it is, yes, basic income, but also building affordable housing, tackling anti-Black racism, anti-indigeneity, introducing things like pharmacare or nationalizing big pharma. The types of things that, you know, that people depend on should be accessible to folks. And I think that should be the framework that our, our elected officials should be operating from. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great point, Paul, just around the knee-jerk reaction of, of governments to times of crisis, economic crisis, tends to be a movement towards restraint within one or two years. And I think these are the kind of uh, policy areas we need to be looking at really closely. I wonder if you can speak a little bit to the the provincial and civic scale of uh, engagement around policy and and how you see uh, some things that could be happening at that level as well. So when I think about Foodshare operates out of Toronto, so I think about what's happening in Ontario, and ultimately I I, I think there's a war on low income people, there's a war on poor poor people, and it's being waged by this provincial government in a similar way that it was waged by Mike Harris and his conservatives in the nineties. An example of that is you know when this premier uh, Doug Ford was elected, one of the first things he did was he scrapped the basic income pilot. He scrapped the planned increase of minimum wage. It was set to go to $15. At the time, it was 14 And as I said earlier, you know, we know that most of the folks that are food insecure are actually working. So increasing the minimum wage would have had a, a, a significant impact on people's ability to get closer to accessing the type of food that they need. I think one of the things that we're thinking about differently and doing a little bit differently is we're not just calling on governments to do things like increase minimum wage or 
bring money in terms of the provincial government, bringing money to the table to support uh, operating supportive housing. We were actually thinking about as an organization, how do we help uh, inspire other organizations and ultimately policymakers dream in color and, and people? So things like we recently introduced a new minimum wage for our organization, and that minimum wage is actually pegged at the living wage in the city of Toronto, which is $22.08. So it means of my you know, over 120 colleagues, nobody is making less than $22.08. And I think you know, we're doing that, one, because we want to support our workers and we, des- we believe that that is what they deserve, but also because we want to inspire and help people recognize that the kind of conversations that our provincial governments are having with us about you know, 14 or $15 are actually inadequate and that we have the power to demand something different. And it's actually urgent because um, people are not able to afford to live in the cities in which they exist. When it comes to the municipal level, you know, one of the things that we've been seeing a little bit in the city of Toronto is the lack of support for underhoused neighbors, the lack of support for folks who have, have no resort other than to living living in encampments, in, in parks. It really sheds light on whose public policy gets defended and then who, whose interests some of our governments are working in, under. Because what we see here is a desire to, it seems to me, a desire to move or to relocate, displace folks who are occupying spaces uh, in parks where they feel a sense of community, where they feel a sense of safety. I, I guess overall, I, I just think I think one of the solutions to all of this kind of thing is not only uh, specific policies, but we actually think about who we're electing to represent us and and how the folks that we have historically elected don't really represent us. We don't have enough people with lived experience of poverty or low-income folks or low-wage workers, survival sex workers, Indigenous folks, other racialized people really occupying uh, the bulk of the positions in our our solution-finding spaces. And I think that's one of the things uh, that would go a long way in having our policymakers recognize the urgency and recognizing the class bias that currently exists in policymaking. Paul, what are some organizations or projects you're inspired by when you look at other cities or conversations around the right to food happening in other cities? I'm thinking about university students who might be listening to this, researching, like, where do you find inspiration uh, right now in the work that you do? Yeah, so I um, there are a couple of places. There's uh, The first one I think about is Nourish Scotland that's doing really great work to animate conversations around the limitations of charity, centering justice approach, a rights-based approach. And I think in the UK, this is especially important because there is a bit of a conversation happening there right now around deepening investment in charity, doubling down in food banking. And there's a growing number of people saying, well, wait a minute, this is not the road we want to go down. Look at what's happened in Canada and the US. So I think it's a really important time and they're animating a really important conversation. There's also a group that I'm a part of called the Global Solidarity Alliance. And it's a global solidarity alliance around health and the right to food. And we are uh, doing similar work, and it's focused on organizations in wealthy countries that are doing the same pushback on charity as a response to food insecurity and poverty, and and trying to help uh, more folks in our countries recognize these limitations, and that so that they can join us in holding politicians to account. So I feel like 
being a part of this network has been really helpful because I hear about where, you know, groups like Why Hunger in New York, where they're having an, uh, some success and where they're seeing uptake uh, and interest in, in the conversation. Paul, it's been delightful to, to speak with you. I'm wondering if there's anything you'd like to like to add. In, in, in summary, it's been delightful to speak to you and to reconnect. And I, I really appreciate you, this invitation. And I just encourage everybody listening to really take a moment to think about how much of what we've been told isn't possible. Really sit in that space and think about a world of possibility instead of a world where we've had neoliberal politicians tell us that, you know, the types of justice that many of us are looking for, whether it's disability justice, climate justice, gender justice, racial justice, you know, that these things are possible. We just need political leadership on many of these things. And we need people power, people coming together to say that these things are important and that we demand that our political leaders prioritize them. Paul, so wonderful to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us on on Below the Radar. Ah, such a pleasure. Thank you. I'll be uh, happy to come back anytime. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Paul Taylor. You can find out more about his work as well as the organizations mentioned in the show notes below. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Below the Radar.